name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, telling you what the papers don't say and what the radio doesn't report. This week, the far-right stuff. Links between Conservative members of Parliament and government appointees to those with extremist views. The Conservatives are perfectly happy to use the figure of Winston Churchill to fuel a sort of this culture war that they, they seem very keen to be fighting. But when it comes to the values that perhaps he fought for in World War II, this, this great moment that was, you know, that they constantly bring up over and over again to prove what British values are and British values of decency and integrity. Well, where is that decency? Where is that integrity if you are playing to a crowd and allying with organisations and with individuals who preach hate? And according to respected political commentator Peter Oborn, the Tory drift to the right is no accident. They've thought all too carefully about which direction they're going in. And it's very frightening because it's turning into a far-right political party in these issues. Plus Boris, Brexit and the broken promises fueling violence in Northern Ireland. Unionists feel that the British government and Boris Johnson in particular did not defend their interests, did not act in their best interests. But in a sense, Northern Ireland became collateral damage to achieving a Brexit for the rest of the United Kingdom. All that to come. First, a reminder that the Byline Times can report on these issues without fear or favour because we're not beholden to any media mogul or press baron or corporate interest. Our funding comes from ordinary listeners like you who take out a subscription to our brilliant monthly paper, The Byline Times. It costs just £36 a year. That helps to support this podcast, Byline TV, and our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's also where you'll find details about subscribing bylinetimes.com and if you've already taken out a subscription well thank you. Now the worrying links between a group of Conservative MPs and far-right even neo-fascist political parties on the Council of Europe an organisation founded by Winston Churchill after World War II to uphold human rights and democracy. A group on the Council called the European Conservatives and Democratic Alliance is chaired by Tory MP Ian Liddell Granger It includes 15 other Conservative MPs and peers, as well as European colleagues who hold views that are deeply problematic. Sean Norris, who broke this story on the Byline Times website, has been telling me more. So, despite us leaving the European Union, the UK is still a member of an entirely separate body called the Council of Europe. This is a body that brings together lots and lots of different European countries and also countries outside, such as Azerbaijan, the Ukraine, various former Soviet countries. And within that group, the Conservative MP Ian Liddell Granger chairs the European Conservatives and Democratic Alliance. And what's concerning about this alliance is that as well as various Conservative MPs and one DUP MP, it also includes MPs from very controversial, far-right, one would even say neo-fascist organisations, including the Alternativa for Deutschland, otherwise known as AFD, Greece's Greek Solution Party and Spain's Fox. And these are organisations, for example, AFD, that has tried to downplay, for example, Germany's violence and the horrors of the genocide of the Holocaust. 
you know, these are anti-immigration, anti-abortion, anti-LGBTIQ political parties, some of whom have made very controversial statements to echo great replacement rhetoric. So this idea that white people in Europe are being replaced by migration from the global south. And interestingly, we've seen a lot lately with the Conservatives talking about Winston Churchill and, you know, defending the statue of Winston Churchill in Parliament Square. Now, the Council of Europe was an initiative co-founded by Winston Churchill, who, as we all know, fought the Nazis in World War II. So how is it that his political descendants are lining up with neo-fascist parties, with far-right parties, some of whom have direct links to Nazi officials from the 1930s, 1940s? They are quite a collection of right-wing, or we would probably say by British standards, far-right parties, aren't they, in this group? You've got the anti-immigration Danish People's Party. You've got the Forum for Democracy from the Netherlands, and their leader has actually repeated this great replacement theory. AFD, who you mentioned in Germany, some of whose representatives have skirted very closely towards fascism and Nazism in their public statements. Yeah, absolutely. So one member of the European Conservatives and Democratic Alliance, he's called Ulrich Omer. And in his election materials, he used a very controversial slogan, which is associated with the slogan that was emblazoned on the daggers owned by SS soldiers during the Second World War. Now, he says that he didn't realise that this was a banned phrase, because obviously Germany has very strict rules about Holocaust imagery and Nazi imagery and and associated language. But it really does give you a flavour of the kind of audience, the kind of voters, the kind of ideas and ideology that these AFD and its members are playing up to. And it really should, we should be asking questions about why the British right, the British centre right, you know, our leading political party, the people who are in government, are sitting down at one imagines a, a virtual table right now with people who hold what are quite abhorrent far-right views. And what have they said then? I know you've tried to contact the leader of the Conservative group in the Council of Europe. Yeah, they, they didn't respond to my request for comment. What was really surprising to me is that, as far as I can tell, this hasn't been reported on before. So the reason I came across this story was because of an article in the Polish media about the um, membership of AFD to this organisation, which was co-founded by the Law and Justice Party. And, you know, they said, actually, AFD have been a member of this group since 2019, December 2019, and it was sort of ignored or, you know, forgotten about by the Polish media, but we really needed to be making a noise about this. And, yeah, I'm curious as to why the UK press hasn't covered this either, because, you know, we do have a pretty good record of covering when... Conservative MPs stand up with far-right activists. You know, there there has been reporting of those kinds of issues. But this one has really flown under the radar for the last year and a bit. And I think we do need to be asking questions about who our MPs are forming alliances with and asking why they're comfortable forming those alliances and if they're going to take any action or what the threshold of bad behaviour or unpleasant remarks or hateful policies is going to be before you decide that you're not going to line up next to neo-fascists and very far-right parties. I know there's a quote in your piece from a Polish 
academic Dr. Rafał Pankowski. He's part of a group in Poland called Never Again. And he's, he asks, where is the decency of the Conservative leaders? How can you build a Holocaust monument at Westminster while simultaneously openly collaborating with Holocaust revisionists, anti-Semites, homophobes, with groups preaching hatred against the Roma and the Muslims, with fans of Franco and Mussolini? It's a very pointed attack by Dr. Pankowski, isn't it? Where do you think it, it tells us that, if you like, traditional centre-right conservatism is now in the UK? I think one of the interesting phenomena of the last few years has been the adoption in mainstream political parties, both in the UK but across Europe, of further to the right, if not far-right, ideas. We've seen this in the kind of the collapse of the UKIP vote because the Conservative Party mainstreamed some of those narratives about migration about minorities, about the culture war. You know, it's much more apparent in some of European countries where, you know, for example, Fidesz in Hungary, the, the, the other far-right party in Hungary is, is, is almost defunct now because, you know, the policies coming out of Fidesz are, are doing the, the job for them. So I think we have to be really aware of where these patterns are happening and how we are seeing this co-option of either far right or shall we say very to the right <laughs> narratives and policies in mainstream politics. The Conservatives are perfectly happy to use the figure of Winston Churchill to fuel a sort of this culture war that they, they seem very keen to be fighting. But when it comes to the values that perhaps he fought for in World War II, this, this great moment that was, you know, that they constantly bring up over and over again to prove what British values are and British values of decency and integrity. Well, where is that decency? Where is that integrity? If you are playing to a crowd and allying with organisations and with individuals who preach hate. Sean Norris. And just to confirm what Sean said in the interview, she did contact Conservative MP Ian Little-Granger about her story, which you can read in full in the Byline Times, but to date she hasn't received a reply. It's not only Conservative MPs associating with those holding troubling views. Byline Times writer Peter Oborn has previously questioned the appointment of William Shawcross as the independent reviewer of Prevent, the government's anti-terrorism programme, because of his views on Islam and his roles on right-wing think tanks who have published controversial material about Muslims. Now, another Byline Times writer, Nafiz Ahmed, has exposed connections between Robin Simcox, recently appointed to lead the government's Commission for Countering Extremism, and US groups who have promoted anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim ideology. I spoke to both Peter Oborn and Nafiz Ahmed. First, Nafiz, on how he was drawn to the Simcox story. Now, this came of interest to me because Robin Simcox is apart from his previous kind of more recent roles, he was a fellow at the Heritage Foundation, he's one of the biggest right-wing think tanks in the United States, very close to the Trump administration, in fact, had numerous kind of appointments into the administration and, you know, had a lot of outgoing officials go back into the foundation as well. So there was that. But what struck me, of course, was Robin Simcox for nearly a decade had actually been a research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society. And I had done a lot of work exposing how the HJS 
had really had an insidious track record of kind of flirting with anti-Muslim conspiracy theorists, even working with some of the alt-right lobbies in the United States, such as the David Horowitz Foundation, who is kind of an all-star of the kind of anti-black movement, anti-immigrant movement. So I was quite familiar with that. You know, Simcox's mentor was a fellow called Douglas Murray, whose writings have kind of been very similar to some of the things that we might call kind of the great replacement theory, the idea that there is an influx of foreigners who are in danger of replacing the kind of so-called white native population. He's kind of steered in that direction, if not necessarily kind of plunging right in that pool. So that was something that was of interest to me. So I began digging and I was quite surprised to discover that Robin Simcox had actually himself seemed to have plunged into that same pool that I just mentioned. In 2019, my piece reports that he had spoken at an organization called the Center for Immigration Studies which is a notorious white nationalist outfit in in the United States. It's been designated a hate group for years by the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center. And I should add that they tried to contest this legally and failed catastrophically. So that still stands. And the reason the SPLC or the Southern Poverty Law Center, they're a civil rights firm which tracks extremist groups. The reason they were designated that way is because the SPLC said they had studied the materials that this organization had been distributing for the last 10 years or so to their members and so on. And it consisted of horrid material from all sorts of alt-right organizations, such as V-Dare, which is a well-known white nationalist publication, stuff by anti-Semitic organizations and anti-Semitic individuals, Holocaust deniers, such as John Friend, Kevin McDonald, a notorious anti-Semite. I mean, really awful stuff. Rent.com, conspiracy theory website. So they would, you know, be distributing this stuff all the time. So I was quite shocked to, to discover this. And Simcox had spoken about a piece of immigration research that he had done. And kind of to make matters worse, in some of his own work, he had published a report a few years earlier for the Heritage Foundation in which he quoted some of the most well-known anti-Muslim conspiracy theorists in the United States, people who've been ridiculed here in the UK even, such as Steve Emerson of the Investigative Project on Terrorism, who famously, uh, you'll remember, described Birmingham on Fox News as as an entire no-go zone for for non-Muslims and was ridiculed at the time by Prime Minister David Cameron. So this guy is cited by Simcox. And you have other people like Lorenzo Vidino, who is an academic in the United States, but who Georgetown University's Bridging Initiative describes as a great replacement conspiracy theorist. In the past, he's been interviewed by David Horowitz's publication, as I I mentioned before, the anti-black icon, and told him about this idea that, you know, in in 30 odd years, you know, the whole white population is going to be, is at risk of being taken over by this massive influx. So, you know, I mean, just, that's just to name a few of the hate groups and, and really dodgy materials. But essentially, Simcox's a disturbing recommendation was that, you know, we need to see American civil society groups as potential fronts for the Muslim Brotherhood. This was a kind of conspiracy theory that's been circulating on the far right of the United States. And it has its kind of people in the mainstream who sympathize with this and try to kind of bring it into public policy. And the concern is, as people I spoke to in the United States, 
were very alarmed at this appointment. I spoke to Mark Potok, who's a senior leader of the SPLC for 20 years. He's now a fellow at the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right, which, by the way, hosted Sara Khan, the former lead commissioner, a couple of years ago at a far-right conference. So this is a very credible organization. And he told me that someone who has kind of affiliated themselves with a group like the CIS and who's quoted these kinds of anti-Muslim conspiracy theories about the Brotherhood should be nowhere near counter-extremism in general, let alone the counter-extremism post in the government. He was absolutely shocked. I even spoke to a senior uh, advisor, former advisor at the State Department, who'd worked under Hillary Clinton and under John Kerry in the previous administrations, and specifically in roles dealing with Islamist movements, Peter Mandeville, one of the foremost authorities on, on Islamist movements. He's an academic. And he was also surprised and, and said, look, you know, this, there's no doubt that, that these views about the idea of the Brotherhood infiltrating every civil society group are very insidious, and they don't really have any foundation reality. And this fits a wider pattern of concern about appointments to key counterterrorism groups in the UK. And Peter Oborn, you've written about the head of Prevent, William Shawcross. One public appointment after another is going to figures who are inappropriate. The first one I would mention, actually, is the chairmanship of the BBC. The new chair of the BBC, Richard Sharp, was a donor to the Quilliam Foundation whose research into grooming gangs, for instance, has been utterly discredited and has now closed down. Now, Sharp has never explained why he gave that money. He just said, he, he, I think he said something like he supported counter-extremism. Well, the other recent one, very strange, is Willie Shawcross, who has been appointed to review the Prevent strategy. Now, this is the Prevent strategy, the huge issues about it being used to spy on Muslims. Personally, I can see the need for the prevent strategy. It's fair news, but it's got to have the confidence of the communities. And it's gone to Willie Shawcross, who talks very much the same sort of language that Simcox does. You know, here he is in January 2012. Europe and Islam is one of the greatest, most terrifying problems for our of our future. I think all European countries have vastly, very quickly growing Islamic populations. He's a, he's a director, or was a director, of, yet again, the Henry Jackson Society. And you've got to put that uh, in the context. These, these appointments, there's now a series of them, of people associated with organisations which have extraordinary positions on Islam. It's got to be seen as a deliberate pattern. You've got to link it, I think, to... Boris Johnson's own remarks, you know, comparing Muslim women wearing face veils to letterboxes and bank robbers. Recently, Tory MP Michael Fabricant used the phrase Anglo-Muslim relations in a tweet, implying that Muslims aren't, obviously implying that Muslims aren't British and there's something else. You know, Andrea Lensom, when leader of the House, did the same, said that Islamophobia was massive for the Foreign Office. And so you, and then you don't, then you get on to the Tory party membership itself. They believe the conspiracy theory. Two thirds of Tory members believe the conspiracy theory. There are areas in Britain that operate under Sharia law. And so there is a, you can see it's in the Conservative Party. You can see it in the appointments they're now making, which are wholly inappropriate. 
Nafiz, what is the broader picture here as you see it? Well, I think what we're seeing is one of the most, not just of the right-wing government, but really one of the most almost far-right governments in British history, which is arguably even one of the most institutionally racist governments in history. It's a government which is literally published or, you know, enabled to be published a bogus report that was being criticised by leading academics in the field, claiming, essentially, effectively trying to claim, but also trying to wash its hands of the claim, that institutional racism doesn't exist. And it's just absurd. I mean, it flies in the face of massive amounts of literature, previous government inquiries. It's just a really silly and kind of bizarre decision to make, to be, let's, let's do this. But what we're seeing really is this constant effort to resurrect the ideology that we saw animating the Trump administration. And I'm really concerned that many of the lobbies and networks that look to Trump as their kind of saviour are now looking to the Boris Johnson regime as a kind of alternative surrogate, you know, that now that Trump has gone, what, what's left? What are the other state structures that we can kind of rely on? So there's definitely, I think, there's this shift and, and almost, you know, with the appointment of Simcox, I mean, we see a literal importation of that ideology into Britain. One of the other things I mentioned in the story is Simcox was reportedly a close confidant of Catherine Gorka, who is a senior Trump administration Homeland Security advisor. According to The Intercept, and they, they obtained some freedom of information documents and stuff, and they saw the emails. And they said that Gorka was involved in increasing anti-Muslim bias of counter-extremism programs in the United States. And she was involved in that. But more than that, I mean, she had a history of anti-Muslim conspiracy theorizing, kind of quite well known. And her husband is Sebastian Gorka, who is a, another kind of top counterterrorism advisor to Trump. Eventually, it came out that he had supported publicly and was affiliated with these Hungarian neo-Nazi orders that were anti-Semitic. So there's this very murky, worrying nexus of people that surrounded Trump that Simcox was plugged into seems to be chronically incapable of criticising them. I've never seen him ever use his counter-extremism credentials and expertise to actually speak out against individuals like that. And yet here he is in this kind of very powerful position in, in, in the UK, now playing a role in determining how we should think about extremism and how we should think about the far right and Islamism. And it's very worrying because there is a risk that the government is going to use these kinds of thoughts and ideas to justify this kind of preconceived ideological agenda, which is already kind of doesn't want to see and admit that there are these problems of structural racism, doesn't want to admit that there are these deep-seated inequalities, and doesn't want to admit that white supremacism is actually a real problem. And, and that doesn't mean that we should point fingers at particular individuals and say, ha, but it does mean that we need to take a good look at what's going on in our society and continue to make good on the real progress that has been made, but increase that by recognising what's really at stake. I don't agree, by the way, with Nafiz. We can't talk about the Johnson regime. It was elected by a massive majority, unfortunately. <laughs> it's not a regime. It is a government. But what I do agree with him is that it somehow having far-right elements. Thanks, Peter, for that correction. I thought you're absolutely right. But I, what I would say is the takeaway from this is that this is a government that sees as its ultimate playbook, in a way, is the division of the working class. 
And it's much easier to control a population when they're jumping at each other's throats, looking at each other's skin color, ideology, religion, and not looking at the wider problems of the society and recognizing how it is that this particular government has been able to ride roughshod over mechanisms of accountability. You know, we're pointing fingers at each other and talking about this, you know, this kind of this kind of so-called woke, anti-woke kind of debate. You know, we're kind of in, in the end, we're missing the wood for the tree. So I think I think that's really the playbook. We saw this with the Trump administration, very deliberate efforts to turn populations against each other and to instrumentalize this idea of white nativism against kind of minorities. And we see that here. And I think but what we've learned, I think, from, from the last 10 years or so is that it's not anyone that really benefits from that. You know, the working class don't actually particularly benefit from many of the policies that are in place. We need a much more inclusive approach where we're all able to have a stake in society. It's very worrying when we have this polarization, you know, between different types of conservatism and the kind of the left-wing progressive, and they end up getting to this point where you have to make these choices between two different types of political party, which are broken in their own ways. There's a lot of work to be done, I think. The conservatives need to kind of really have a think about what direction they're going in and where that ends up for society. And is it sustainable? Ultimately, it's not. My view, Nafis, is they thought all too carefully about which direction they're going in. And it's very frightening because it's turning into a far-right political party in these issues, at least. Sobering words from Peter Oborn and, before that, Nafiz Ahmed. Read more from both of them at bylinetimes.com. When the Home Office was contacted by Byline Times, they said Robin Simcox was appointed as interim lead commissioner due to his wealth of experience in the area of extremism, having worked at a senior level for organisations including the counter-extremism group. They said the role of interim commissioner is independent of government, but that all individuals appointed to roles like this are carefully vetted. Now, disturbances on the streets of Northern Ireland have provoked comparisons with the Troubles, the period of violence which started with the civil rights marches of the 60s and didn't end until the Good Friday Agreement, or Belfast Agreement, of 1998. No one pretends that sectarian divisions disappeared overnight, but Northern Ireland has been largely peaceful for the last 23 years. Recently, though, tensions have been rising, partly because of the decision not to prosecute mourners, including Northern Ireland's Deputy First Minister Michelle O'Neill, who appeared to flout Covid rules at the funeral of former IRA Sinn Féin man Bobby Storey. And then there's Brexit which has brought in its wake the Northern Ireland Protocol and the creation of a de facto trade border in the Irish Sea between Britain and Northern Ireland. To understand more about what's going on on the ground, I brought together two local councillors from Belfast, which has seen the worst of the disturbances. Kate Nicholl from the Non-Sectarian Alliance Party and John Kyle from the Progressive Unionist Party. First, John, on what he sees as the causes of the current conflict. Well, a combination of factors have contributed to the present situation that we find ourselves in. The preeminent one is widespread anger, the Northern Ireland Protocol. I think that that has really unnerved and angered unionists and particularly loyalists. They do see that as something that seriously undermines their Britishness and their being part of the United Kingdom. 
I think added to that, there was the the events around the funeral of Bobby's story, where there was a flagrant disregard for COVID regulations and guidance by the hierarchy of Sinn Féin, and then the decision not to proceed with any prosecutions, and that was seen to be a political decision where Sinn Féin operate under different rules and regulations to everybody else. And I think that that angered people. And and I suppose also it does reflect the fact that you've got young people who have been cooped up for the past year. They haven't been able to socialise, haven't been going to school, haven't been relating to one another normally. And then we do have a history of sectarian conflict. People over decades have been confronting one another, sometimes in a friendly way and sometimes in a more aggressive way. So uh, interface violence is a part and parcel of life here in Northern Ireland. It's something that we've been working on and trying to deal with, but it is part of life. So these factors all combined to produce the violence that we've seen over the past fortnight. Why does the Northern Ireland Protocol hit at people's sense of British identity? Well, first of all, it's important to say that for many unionists, not all unionists, but for many unionists and loyalists, being British is a central part of their identity, who they are. They identify as British. The royal family or their royal family, their children sign up and serve in the British Armed Forces. And families are very proud of the fact that their children have served. They view history through the lens of British history. They're proud to be part of the United Kingdom. They love the richness and the diversity of the United Kingdom. Being British is important. It's part of who we are. So the Northern Ireland Protocol has, in effect, put a border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. So we are no longer treated in the same way as the other residents, citizens of the United Kingdom. And this fundamentally strikes at the very heart of us being British, being part of the United Kingdom. And this regulatory border and the other consequences of the Northern Ireland Protocol are seen as the start of a, of a divergence, a separation of Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK. And as time passes, this divergence could become greater. And that would then again be the start of a slippery stroke toward a united Ireland. It increases the sort of economic unity of the island. Uh, it was seen as a risk to supply chains. So businesses would have to reorientate trading primarily with GB to being forced to then trade via the Republic of Ireland with the EU. So those factors combined created what was perceived as a genuine threat to the constitutional position of Northern Ireland. Because although Boris Johnson said that he would not consent to a border down the Irish Sea in the eyes of unionists, that's precisely what has happened, that in terms of trading goods... Northern Ireland is part of the European Union in practice and distinct from the rest of the United Kingdom. Yes. Again, we're opening up a whole area there that could be explored. But Boris Johnson promised that there wouldn't be a border. He promised the DUP there wouldn't be a border in the RSC. When there was a border, clearly there was going to be a border. He denied the fact that there was going to be one, refused to acknowledge that. So people feel that they were betrayed by the Prime Minister, who was frankly dishonest in his dealings with them. And so therefore, they look at the Republic of Ireland, who have been consistent, who have set out their stall, who have said what they want to achieve, who have steadfastly defended the rights of the nationalist population to remain Irish and that there shouldn't be a border within the island of Ireland. 
And unionists feel that the British government and Boris Johnson in particular did not defend their interests, did not act in their best interests. But in a sense, Northern Ireland became collateral damage to achieving a Brexit for the rest of the United Kingdom. So there is a sense of betrayal there. Uh, There's a sense that Boris Johnson has not acted honourably or honestly. And so there is an anger in that. But it's also undergirded by a fear that this does mark a turning point where Northern Ireland is beginning to drift apart from the rest of the United Kingdom. I think that fear is underneath a lot of the disturbance and unhappiness that is here in Northern Ireland. Kate, do you share that analysis? I think what John has articulated, particularly in terms of the multiple factors that have led to where we are at the moment are spot on. I think that there is definitely a sense of injustice within um, loyalism. There is a perception, rightly or wrongly, that nationalists get everything and unionists are being left behind. There's definitely a sense that Westminster doesn't care and there's very little love for Boris Johnson. I think there was also a strong sense of alienation and feeling like their politicians aren't looking after them. And there's not a reflection on John, who is an active representative on the ground. But you'll see particularly in in the DUP and within unionist leadership, the, the use of rhetoric and the outworkings of this. You know, what happens is statements are made and comments are made, especially with the protocol at the beginning. Arlene Foster was quite pragmatic about it and, and how we had to make it work. Now she's taking legal action and There's not enough responsibility, I think, in trying to kind of quell the discontent that exists. So Arlene Foster, the first minister, she originally acquiesced to the protocol. Now she's taking legal action to get it overturned. Yes, that's definitely my perception that our politicians don't always put the good of everyone at the forefront. We've got assembly elections next year. So there's a lot that's kind of playing out. You also need to remember that poverty is a massive issue in our society on both sides of of the peace walls. We have 21% of children in living in absolute poverty. And Northern Ireland has the highest levels of multiple deprivation in the UK. There are a lot of issues. And My interpretation of how it's kind of being viewed, especially in England, is that this is sectarian violence. And it's quite easy whenever there's any issue in Northern Ireland to kind of be like, oh, harking back to the troubles. But it's so much more complicated than that. And I agree with what John has said in terms of the multiple levels. My party was, you know, very against Brexit because our very fragile peace exists because we operate on the basis of cooperation and interdependence. If you leave the customs union and the single market, you've got to put a border somewhere. You either put it along the 310 miles of the hard physical border or you put it through the Irish Sea. And I think that there's the opportunity where we could really make something great for Northern Ireland. And Northern Ireland has so much talent and so much to offer. We could have been this gateway to both that hasn't been grasped. And I feel like people are being manipulated, fears are being manipulated and tensions are being created. And the people who are paying the price are the working class communities again and again. Because the Good Friday Agreement was predicated on membership of the European Union. It may not have explicitly said that, but the sense that you could live in Ireland and nevertheless pledge allegiance to the Republic of Ireland by having an Irish passport, for example, or you could feel part of the United Kingdom by having a British passport, that relied on the underpinning of being part of this broader political union. Once the UK decides to leave the European Union, 
it becomes problematic for Northern Ireland. For so many reasons. I mean, I think I think that's an important point that European identity is very strong with a number of people. I know as someone who has quite a complex <laughs> sense of identity, I, I was born in Zimbabwe, grew up in Zimbabwe. When I moved here, I moved to a loyalist housing estate. I've lived in an area that would be viewed as Republican. You know, you'd see tricolors on, on the road. I live in a mixed area now. I think the beauty of the Good Friday Agreement is that you can be British, Irish and both. And that's completely accepted. The problem is those ambiguities then come to the fore because of Brexit, because we suddenly have these borders and these questions and also the threat of what the future holds. I think that's a very serious issue, fear about what the future holds and the language about border poll and and United Ireland. When you feel like Westminster doesn't take you seriously and you feel like you haven't benefited, then, you know, there's, there's a lot of fear there. Kate raises some important points. From a loyalist perspective, the Good Friday Agreement was predicated upon equal treatment of the nationalist and unionist traditions and the removal of the border from within the island of Ireland. And it was a carefully balanced, nuanced, intricate agreement that was put together and achieved, I think, a very successful outcome. Now, loyalists would say that the Good Friday Agreement has been seriously knocked out of equilibrium by the Northern Ireland Protocol. And the losers in that change would be unionism and loyalism, while the identity and free flow and free movement of folks from the nationalist community has been preserved. There now are obstacles and differences between a member of the United Kingdom living in Northern Ireland, a member of the United Kingdom living in Macclesfield or in Bristol or in Edinburgh. So our citizenship has been altered by Brexit. It's all to do with identity. And even though you can say to somebody, well, you know, there are economic opportunities here, and that's true. Although for the, the working class, what they face is increased food prices and increased prices of necessities. But for them, it's not so much about the economy. It is about identity. It's about who I am and it's about the place that I belong to. They feel that that is under threat. Even notwithstanding the economic opportunities, they do see there being a problem in terms of their identity. And you said to me before this recording, John, that members of the unionist community would sooner be worse off economically in the United Kingdom than better off outside of it. It runs that deep. That is absolutely true for for the working class community. Now, we have the concept of the any place person who could be as comfortable whether they're living in Dublin or in Glasgow or in Manhattan. You know, they can work wherever they are. They've got a sort of urbane approach to life. They're quite cosmopolitan. They're well-educated. They've got transferable skills. But for a working class person here, their identity is tied up with where they live and where they live is very important to them. So seeing themselves as being Northern Irish is important. And then having said that, you know, for many middle class unionists, they're not as staunchly unionist as working class folks would be. They can have a a discussion about the future of the island of Ireland and say, you know, well, how would that work and how would we fit into that? And what are the possibilities? Whereas for a working class person to talk about the future of of the island of Ireland, to them, it is simply the start of one directional journey into United Ireland. And, you know, why would you want to start to have that discussion when the end point is somewhere that you do not want to go? So their allegiance to the place 
to their identity, to the United Kingdom, transcends economic benefits or losses. Kate said that once Brexit had been voted upon, it was inevitable that there would have to be some form of border between the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland, because one is within the European Union and one post-Brexit is not. There was all sorts of talk about maybe technological solutions to the border, but none of those were tested. None of those has actually been implemented. It, it, it seems to have been a bit of a, a bit of a pipe dream. And, and we are left now in practice with this border down the Irish Sea. Why do you think Westminster allowed that? Do you think they sincerely believed that there was another solution available or that ultimately they just didn't care enough about what happened to Northern Ireland? Well, I think they didn't care enough about what happened in Northern Ireland. I think the political dialogue was dominated by hard Brexiteers who wanted who wanted a full, proper, you know, full-blooded Brexit. And in that case, you're absolutely right that Northern Ireland can't square that circle. So there had to be, you know, some somebody had to pay the cost of that. And I think that Northern Ireland was sacrificed in the interest of a full Brexit. However, I do think that it is what it is, but there are ways to make it work. The political discourse has been very acrimonious and has been quite polarised. But I think that we need to step back and say, look, we are where we are. We've got to find ways to make this work. And I think the British government has a responsibility to work with the European Union. We need to dial down the rhetoric. We need to get the British government and the European Union and the Irish government working together in the best interest of the people of Northern Ireland. And at the moment, the loyalists are the ones who I think are at the bottom of the pile and who have paid the greatest price. I, I agree. And I, I think anyone who says there haven't been issues with implementing the protocol is being disingenuous. I think there is a lot of work being done. It's important to remember, though, that Northern Ireland is devolved, so we do things slightly differently anyway. And I think that focusing on that and how we make Northern Ireland work for everyone has to be the focus of leadership and making the NI protocol a constitutional issue was always going to be really dangerous because what else can we do in the wake of Brexit? We have to do something and we have to make it work. I would just say that we do things differently in many ways. We've got different ways of doing things. We have our own assembly and reminding people of that, I think, is important. I just wanted to pick up on the point about the importance of place and identity. And I think that's so true. When you come to Belfast, you see it's a city that's kind of divided into four quadrants and people are very happy in their own area, but maybe don't feel safe or welcome in other areas. And our peace walls across the city are part of that. Seven or eight percent of people in Northern Ireland are in integrated education. How we educate our young people, it's still segregated. How we operate is still segregated. And whatever happens with the constitution, we're always going to have to share this place. It's always going to be people who are British, people who are Irish, people who are Northern Irish, all of those things living together. And if we're going to make this work, then politicians really need to focus on all of those things and how we focus on the good. And I think that there have absolutely been issues with the NI protocol in terms of implementing it. But I think those things are manageable. And I think there is work being done. There just needs to be a bit more leadership from politicians across the board. I, th I think the danger is that Northern Ireland becomes a pawn, the United Kingdom's trade battles with the EU and the battles around Brexit and the resentment that that created. Northern Ireland becomes just a victim of that, you know, so both parties can use Northern Ireland to get one over on the other. 
both the EU and United Kingdom. And I think that's very unwise. Given our history of difficulties or our history of our conflicted history here, we need to be looking ways to protect the Good Friday Agreement to support both of the communities that there are in Northern Ireland, although it is a bit more complex than that now, uh, and not use Northern Ireland for political gain by bigger countries. John Kyle and Kate Nicholl, two councillors in Belfast. And you can read more about the recent upsurge in violence in Northern Ireland at bylinetimes.com. Don't forget that this podcast is funded entirely by subscribers to our fab monthly paper, The Byline Times, which costs just £36 a year. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to The Byline Times podcast. See you next week.